Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books Network Seminar. Welcome, and thank you so much for joining us. I just got off the Skype phone with Steve Shaviro to talk about his really, really interesting and really exceptionally clearly and helpfully written new book, The Universe of Things on Speculative Realism. This came out in 2014 with the University of Minnesota Press. Now, if you've never read anything on Whitehead, on speculative realism, on object-oriented ontology, on Harmon, on Mia Sue, on any of these um, writers who are uh, and have been identified as being very heavily engaged with kind of object studies, speculative realism, new materialism. Start here. Um, I say that because this is a book that um, not only presents a very clear argument to push our understanding of speculative realism and how to think with objects forward, but also offers a really wonderfully um, and a very clearly laid out introduction to some of the major aspects of the thought and the ideas of people like um, Quentin Miasu, Graham Harmon, the work of Alfred North Whitehead, um, to some extent the work of Isabel Stengers commenting on and sort of reading and thinking with Whitehead. So it's a really great place to start if you have heard about these things, are interested and don't know where to dive into this ocean of literature. It's a really clear introduction. But much more than that, it's also... I think a very stimulating set of chapters that bring aesthetics, um, aesthetic theory and ways of thinking about and thinking with aesthetics to bear on some of the key issues at stake in work um, by um, people who have been called speculative realists or new materialists and um, the work of Whitehead in conversation with the work of those people. So it's really, really interesting. Um, again, it's it's just a really a pleasure to read and it was really great to talk with Steve about it. I really enjoyed this one. So what you'll hear in the interview to come is our conversation, not just about some major themes and major threads of the book, some of the most important or some of the chapters that we get to, all the chapters are important, right? But we also talk about um, the blogosphere and the importance of blogging to what's happening right now in contemporary academia, among other things. So thank you for listening. Um, I hope you enjoy, and I hope you have a chance to read the book. I'm here today to talk with Stephen Shaviro about his new book, The Universe of Things. Welcome to the New Books Network seminar, Steve, and thanks very much for taking time to talk with me today. Really looking forward to this. Thanks. So, Steve, could you start us off um, by saying just a little bit about the emergence of this project as a monograph project for you? What brought you to want to work on speculative realism um, and its relation to Whitehead as the focus for the book, and how does this fit within your broader research trajectory? Okay, well, um, it's really a result of casual but intriguing encounters. Um, one of my previous books was on the philosophy of Alfred North Whitehead, who is a major, I think, philosopher, but who's been kind of sidelined in the last 50, 60 years. And I published that book in 2009. And around that time, I began to encounter the stirrings of this kind of new philosophical trend called speculative realism. And I found it intriguing and stimulating. And I can talk a little more about what speculative realism is, as well about what it is. So... I started thinking about it, reading everything I could, and writing about it, and eventually turned into a book. And what I think I did was I tried to both give a summary of speculative realism as a new philosophical trend and related to my previous work on Alfred North Whitehead. Great. 
Great. And this is um, perfect because we're going to actually start off um, in a couple minutes by talking about yeah. um, a lot of these sort of major concepts. So one of the things I want to say right off the bat um, yeah. is I really appreciate it as a reader how clear the writing is. This is a book that's a real pleasure to read, and that's not always the case <laughs> you know, for a book. Well, thank Yeah. Thank you. I mean, I don't know. I try... For, I'm not a professional philosopher, even though I'm writing about philosophy. I'm a film scholar by academic discipline. And I, I want to write something that people, in the, since it's not my field, I want to write something that people in that field will understand, but also something that's not confined to them, but that will be more accessible. So it's a, very, it's a big problem in academia. We have all these theories. We have a lot of specialized discourse or specialized terms which are important because they give you a shortcut to talk about certain things. But, um, but it's very hard to, of, to, to avoid getting bog, bogged down. So I make a special effort to try to write more clearly, I guess. That's right. And it's one of the reasons I was really excited to talk with you for the seminar channel is because I think there's it, this is such an emerging field right now. But the yeah. There's so much out there um, to sort of wade through for the reader who's potentially interested in, okay, diving in somewhere, right, but doesn't know where to start. Yeah. And this is really the book that I would recommend. It's written so clearly, and it's so... Thanks. Um, yeah, this is really, for me, the place that I would recommend starting, and that's... Um, uh, so I want to just say that right off the bat for Thank you. So let's get into it. The book treats the philosophy of Whitehead, as you've just mentioned, in the context of recent work in what's been called speculative realism and sometimes um, work that's been called new materialism. So let's dive in um, by really kind of exploring these notions. For okay. listeners who aren't familiar with this field of um, work that you're calling speculative realism, can you just explain a little bit about, for you, um, what is that and what's important for us to understand about that notion about that notion as a way of describing yeah. a group of people to understand what comes later in the book. Sure. Well, speculative realism is a term which is actually very disputed now. A lot of people involved, or I would say are involved with it, don't want to be called that. But I still find it too useful a term to avoid. Okay, so the term, the phrase speculative realism came from a conference at Goldsmiths University in London in 2007. And there were four philosophers, um, one American, Graham Harmon, one Frenchman, Kenton Mayasu, and two British philosophers, Ian Hamilton Grant and Ray Brassier. And they all have very different viewpoints. And in fact, recently they've been arguing with each other, but they all, at least initially, agreed to speak under this rubric. When speculative realism means, I guess there are two parts of it. Well, one is realism. Realism is sort of the insistence that things in the world, I mean, it's a common sense thing, but it's very, it's, it turns out to be very hard to formulate well, even if you take it for granted commonsensically. Realism is that things in the world, the world and things in the world exist independently of us, meaning that uh, we always have frameworks with which we understand the world around us as well as each other's. And doing the framework sort of makes our, our terms or our framework becomes the terms in which everything's understood, and that leaves the question of how do things exist, to what extent do things exist, apart from or outside of the framework, which we can't avoid using in order to understand them. You can say this more technically in the history of Western philosophy in the last several hundred years, but as a kind of general thing, it's sort of like in the 18th century, Bishop Barclay said the physical world didn't exist, only ideas existed, and Dr. Samuel Johnson claimed to refute him by kicking a rock. And the point is that Johnson was right and Barclay was wrong. Things do exist outside of us, independently of us, but kicking a rock doesn't work to prove it because you could say that that itself is he's having mental impressions of pain. How does he really know it? The rock's really there, things like that. So realism seems something which we should believe in, but when you try to go into it deeply, it's very hard to actually get to it, very hard to get things away from or independently of our own mental frameworks which we impose upon things. And that leads to the adjective speculative. The idea of the speculative realist was that basically you need to go beyond certain limits and certain taken-for-granted assumptions in order to be able to somehow contact the reality that exists outside of our own all-too-human conceptualizations. 
So the different speculative realist thinkers do this in very different ways, and they disagree in so much, that's why a lot of them don't like the term anymore. But I think that's basically what it is. The term which is used, Kenton Mayasu, one of the four, original four, uses this term correlationism. Mm-hmm. See, others have adopted correlationism. He defines as a philosophy that things are ideas about things and things go together. And it's, he's really thinking of, again, something which is also commonsensical, sort of phenom- phenomenology in the 20th century basically says um, mind and object world are not independent of each other. You always have something both. So I, I always, whenever I think, I'm thinking uh, towards or about something in the physical world or mental. And, but, and I can't conceive things outside of that, but also I can't think of myself solipsistically without those things I've I'm kind of typing with. So that also seems commonsensical, but again, it's reductive. It sort of excludes the possibility of thinking about things that are outside the frame of reference in which we contact them or in which we have a grasp on them. Thank you so much. And so these are some of the major terms that come up in a lot of yeah. literature, right? Um, yes. So both Whitehead, so you're putting the speculative realists and to some extent people who are um, coming under the rubric of new materialists, and um, we'll talk about that a little bit yeah. later maybe. So you're putting them um, very explicitly into dialogue with the work of Whitehead. Both Whitehead and um, speculative realists are taking issue with what's what you call a key assumption of modern Western rationality, and that yeah. is anthropocentric. Okay. So this yes. is another way in which this really, I think, speaks to a broader field of science studies, people who are working mm-hmm. with, right, like, like work of Latour yes. in that context. Um, and you talk about Whitehead's philosophy here as, at least in part, an attempt to overcome the bifurcation of nature. So the opposition between primary and secondary qualities, etc. Yeah. And this speaks back to this issue of correlationism that you mentioned. Now, uh, and there's lots more <laughs> we could talk yes. about about Whitehead, and we will talk about some of it in the in the okay. hour to come. Well. So, in um, at least in my limited experience, right, in recent years, Whitehead is becoming um, newly relevant to a bunch of fields, and you briefly mentioned this at the beginning of the book as well. Um, so, I just kind of wanted to open this up by asking yeah. you a little bit about that. Why do you think that is? What's going on um, that's making Whitehead so newly relevant? so many humanistic and and social sciences field and beyond. Well, I should start by saying a little bit about Whitehead, since he still isn't really all that well-known. So Whitehead was a British and later became a philosopher, eventually moved to America, born in 1861 and died in 1947. And he he did his first major work in collaboration with his one-time student, Bertrand Russell, on the foundations of mathematics. And that, in many circles, is what he's best known for, but it's work which he himself seems to have ultimately renounced. After he, after World War I, after he and Russell stopped working together, he started developing his own kind of philosophy of nature and of the cosmos. It started out as an attempt to think about philosophy and science, but broadened into a whole, whole kind of metaphysics. And why he had major work it's called Process and Reality. It was published in 1929. So I could say a little more about Whitehead's ideas, but the point is, in terms of his reputation, Whitehead was a big figure in American philosophy and British philosophy in the early 20th century. I mean, a lot of students who went to other places, but sort of his reputation went into eclipse after the middle of the 20th century. And the second half of the 20th century, very few people read him. He doesn't even get included in many histories of philosophy from, from the time. Um, there were a bunch of sort of Protestant philosophers who were interested in him in, from a religious or theological angle, but aside from that, he was sort of absent from most mainstream philosophy, both Anglo-American analytic and European continental philosophy. And there's been something of a revival of interest in his work in recent years. This is partly due to the French philosopher Gilles Deleuze, who didn't write much about Whitehead, but writes a chapter about him in his late book, The Fold, which is mostly about Leibniz. And then that's picked up by, I think a key figure is Isabel Stengers. She's a Belgian philosopher who's done very important work in the philosophy of science and in science, the issues that she's, she's very influential in science studies especially, and but she's also very interest in Whitehead and published an immense like 650 page book about Whitehead 
in yeah. about a decade ago. And basically, my introduction to Whitehead is through her and my whole reading of Whitehead. I mean, there are other traditions of people talking about Whitehead in, you know, in, in the U.S. and Britain, but I get my Whitehead basically through her. And I think it's she and Deleuze are sort of responsible for the growth of interest in Whitehead in some fields. But it turns out, I mean, part of my argument in my previous book I wrote about Whitehead without criteria is that Whitehead turns out to be surprisingly, for somebody who wrote such a long time, you know, somebody who's been so eclipsed in the history of philosophy, relevant for a lot of contemporary issues. And it's partly because he has a broad environmental kind of concern, and partly because a lot of the metaphysical or the dualism, subject and object, or self and other, or mind and matter, which a lot of philosophy like Jacques Derrida and others have tried to criticize in the last 50 years, turn out to have sort of been dealt with by Whitehead much less ostentatiously, but almost, but nonetheless, he just he doesn't argue against these things so much as he builds a new philosophy which circumvents them, unless it hardly resonates with attempts in the last 40, 50 years by people who seem unaware of him to get away from certain metaphysical dualisms. The other side of that, though, is Whitehead is frankly saying, I'm writing a new metaphysics. He's not saying, we're getting, I'm trying to get away from metaphysics, like someone like Derrida would say. He just is giving a different metaphysics. Completely coincidentally, here at UBC in the STS program, we're doing a reading group later on today on thinking with Whitehead. (laughs) So so it's actually a nicely timed. Um, I think there's really a resurgence of interest in Stanger's work on Whitehead as well in the science studies community. That hasn't been the case really for North Mm -hmm. American science studies. Well, there's a hidden, there's a kind of hidden relation with Bruno Latour, who of course is influential in science studies. Latour is very close to Stengers. I mean, they're very good friends. And, it's, and Whitehead is a mostly silent influence on Latour's work as well as on Stengers. So. so thank you so much. So one of the really interesting things about this book is that not only is it opening up for us this relationship between Whitehead and speculative realism, but it's really framing, um, at least in part of the book, a lot of the arguments here in terms of aesthetics. And this isn't something that's necessarily the case in some other works on speculative realism, so it's no. really, really interesting and I think really useful. So in the Thanks. introduction... Um, you mention a quotation by Stéphane Mallarmé, everything comes down to aesthetics and political economy. And we're going to kind of see some of that playing out. Yeah. So after a first chapter that I'm not going to ask you to talk too much about um, purely so that we can um, you know, try to get yeah. to as much as possible, mm-hmm. that looks at Whitehead's position on aesthetics and ethics in comparison with that of Levinas. So I'm um, just mm-hmm. mentioning that so that yeah. listeners who are particularly interested in that can sort of in that dialogue can look to chapter yeah. one. We come to chapter two, and this is a work, or this is part of the book that contrasts the process-oriented thought of Whitehead with the object-oriented ontology of Graham Harmon and others. Yeah. So, um, to kind of take to take listeners and potential readers who may not have read the book yet into this dialogue that you're creating, for you, what are some of the most important differences? between Whitehead and Harmon, and um, why does that matter for how we understand the states of the book? Okay, well, again, I started writing this largely because I was so intrigued by Harmon's philosophy, which has been, I mean, there's several things to say background. One is that a lot of the stuff about speculative realism has been conducted online. It's sort of the first philosophy which really develops in the blogosphere, rather than just in academic articles, though they exist also. And that's part of and that's part of the engagement, I think. I mean that's part of the background of why it's become a kind of subject of interest. But leaving that aside, um, Harmon acknowledges his interest in Whitehead, though for him Heidegger is probably more important. But Harmon um, basically again is trying as an object or as an object-oriented ontologist, as a, which is a variety of speculative research, he's trying to get away from anthropocentrism in Western thought. Okay. So the way he does that is he wants to de-emphasize the centrality of a human subject looking at a world of objects, and which he calls this great rift in the cosmos between human subjectivity or rationality on one hand and, and physicality or materiality or objectivity on the other hand. 
And the way he does that is he wants to say that, in, in, in fact, relations that human beings have to an object, say the relation I have to a rock on the ground, is really not, which is central to things like phenomenology, that that is really not any difference in nature, it may be different in degree from, say, how the rock relates to the patch of ground it's on top of or to the, the insect which makes a nest under it or something like that. In other words, rather than seeing my relation of cognizing, understanding, knowing the world as the center of everything, and human subjectivity, therefore, is crucial, what Carmen wants to do is to put all these relations on the same level. How a human being relates to a rock or a centipede is no different in nature, ultimately, than how the rock relates to the centipede or vice versa, or how either of them relate to the dirt in which they're both found or, or, or whatever. Okay. So that's an interesting move, and that's actually very parallel to Whitehead, because Whitehead sees things as continually calling to and answering to and relating to and taking up aspects of other things. And he tries very much to say, we see this in human perception, but we want to get away from human perception as the model of everything. We want to see that all kinds of things which go on in the world have similar kinds of things going on. Okay, so in that sense, that's why there's a comparison between Harmon and Whitehead. They both want to do that. The way Harmon does it, though, is very different from the way Whitehead does it. Harmon says... What you ultimately have are objects. Every, I mean, you don't instead of subject and object, you sort of think objects as a basic category without subject. Um, we we ourselves are objects. Things like rocks and computers are objects. Objects contain other objects. Um, obviously, things if you look at what something's made of, but they're not necessarily reducible to the objects inside them. All objects interact with other objects, according to Harmon, but they all exist at a distance from each other. They all relate as a distance. We cannot have any holism or bring everything together. And in this way, Harmon tries both gives a sort of metaphysical vision of the world, but also tries to get away from saying how I, as subject, perceive objects as central categories, since it's only one instance of many ways in which objects interact with, but also keep their distance from other objects. Whitehead does it differently because Whitehead basically thinks the components of reality are not objects, but processes, become or acts of becoming or things which happen. Okay, so what Harmon will say is a rock is a thing in itself, kind of. I can't know the rock completely. I can't understand everything with the rock. There's always more to the rock than what I get out of the rock. And epistemological relation between me and the rock is never complete. I can never go from my relation to the rock to the rock itself. And therefore, he says the rock is, in effect, this object sealed in its vacuum, not communicating with everything else beyond a limited extent and totally inaccessible to outsiders. Whitehead puts it very differently because Whitehead would say that the rock is not, not, a, it's not a substance, it's not a thing, subsisting thing. It's actually, it's not just that it's composed of molecules and agitation, but that in a certain sense, even though the rock's just sitting there, it's actually doing something. It's existing. It's resisting the erosion, which is wearing it down. Um, so in a certain sense, Whitehead would say that even the rock sitting there is not just an inert object, it's it's a series of events, a series of events of being this rock. I mean, it's actually more complicated because he talks about constituents and micro-constituents, but leaving that aside. In the same way, he says, I am not an self looking at the rock. I'm really recreating myself. Who I am now is sort of mostly who I was a quarter of a second ago, but it's not completely who I was a quarter of a second ago because everything that happens around me changes me. So in a certain sense, he says, I have a, I'm have not an entity so much as I'm a, he says, a historic root of occasions. An occasion is a particular instance of something happening. So every quarter of a second, I'm sort of take up what I was a quarter of a second before and continue and renew myself. And I'm in effect, I'm a new, I'm a new self. I'm not very different from what I was a quarter of a second ago, but only some events change us a lot. But, um, but, but in fact, Whitehead says, this is what, I, I am a series of happenings, a series of becoming, a series of events continually renewing themselves and always picking up from what came before, but always slightly different because it, it has to be a new event at every moment. 
Now, you talk about um, in this chapter, and in a way that I think is really, really interesting, you talk about the main contrast between Harmon and Whitehead, given um, the, the really helpful background that you've just given us. So thank you. Yeah. And I love the phrase, I, as a historic root of occasions. I just love that. That's now going to be imprinted on my brain. Um, but you talk about this contrast in terms of aesthetics, right? The aesthetics of the beautiful versus the yeah. aesthetics of the sublime, which I think is, is really interesting and really important in so far as this gives us a way to hook up this um, dialogue that you've created between these two sets of work with a larger interest that I think is also emerging in science okay. studies yeah. with you know romanticism um, and sort of discourse. Yeah. And the next chapter takes us into that too. So can you maybe talk yeah. about that a little bit? Well, sure. Um, obviously, the beautiful and sublime are two big categories in aesthetics. This dates to the 18th century for Edmund Burke on the beautiful and sublime, and especially to Immanuel Kant's third critique, where he talks about the beautiful and sublime as two modes of aesthetic judgment. Um, so, basically, beautiful is sort of things which fit together in a harmonious pattern, and sublime is something which is so overwhelming it just blows you away. And um, you might say for most of the 20th century, most thinkers or most aestheticians, most people think about aesthetics at all, have favored the sublime. Um, it seems more, seems as essentially a modernist category, though it dates back to the Romantics and before. Um, stuff which ruptures things, which suggests something incommensurate, where, you know, for Kant it was the immensity of looking at the mountains and something like that. But in the 19th century and the 20th century, the basic goal of modernist art is to rupture with what came before, to create a disharmony, um, to create radically new perceptions, this might wrench us out of ourselves, and so on and so forth. And that's so, in a certain sense, the 20th century generally views beauty with suspicion as being kind of corny and old-fashioned and, and out of date and relying on a kind of, you know, pre-modern assumption that there's like that things can be harmonious when obviously we know that they're not. Um, Whitehead in the, is certainly a modernist. He I mean, a lot of his writing comes from the revolutions in physics at the beginning of the 20th century. He was also good friends with Gertrude Stein. Um, but nonetheless, Whitehead seems to have a reversion to kind of romantic style aesthetics, and he talks about the beautiful more than, than the sublime. And what I, my reading of Whitehead on beauty, I mean, Whitehead and Harmon both, in effect, suggest aesthetic judgment rather than cognitive judgment is sort of the ultimate underlying. And I come back to that because there are other ways to talk about that. But um, sort of for White, Whitehead's aesthetic of the beautiful is there are these things which don't fit together and you somehow make them fit together. You, he says you turn an opposition into a contrast. So Whitehead is kind of into beautiful patterns as opposed to you know something so sublime that it just blows you away and leaves you devastated. But in a certain sense, Whitehead's aesthetic is actually very much related, I think, to a lot of things happening in the 21st century, because right now, many forms of art, both in popular and high culture, are sort of collages and reappropriation. There are all this other stuff, and you take these things and bits and pieces of things and put them together in new ways, Sorry. like BJ makes a set, and that, that kind of aesthetic has its roots in modernism also, but it's de-emphasized by the modernist insistence on the sublime, and yet it's a part of modernism which maybe is more relevant today since with our digital technology and with our general cultural exhaustion, we seem to be more... I mean, I, I take a kind of DJ mixing things as the kind of prototypical example of what 21st century aesthetics is. I and that totally... In a certain sense... Agree. I gave it Whitehead becomes oddly relevant... <laughs> I gave a talk last year on history as the art of the DJ. So I'm, yeah. I'm completely right. with you. <laughs> completely That's with right. you. Yeah. So this is actually, I mean, the, um, I want to jump in just very briefly because yeah. some of the um, key terms that you're mentioning, pattern and pattern contrast, these are really, really important yeah. to what's going on. And they also look back to, um, for listeners who are interested in particular in this idea of pattern and contrast, you talk yeah. about this as well um, in its instantiation in the work of Whitehead in Chapter 1. So that's another really interesting theme, this idea of pattern and um, to contrast and juxtaposition that I think we can read throughout the book in, in super interesting ways. Thanks. Yeah. So 
chapter three um, also looks a little bit more closely, and, and again, um, I won't ask you to talk too much more about this. I just want to kind of mark this for listeners, but chapter three looks a little bit more closely at um, Whitehead's reading, right, of British Romanticism, and looks yeah. at it alongside Harmon's reading of Heidegger, um, Heidegger on tool being and, and other components of Harmon's work on Heidegger, um, and you open that up in chapter three with a reading of what sounds like a really fabulous short story called The Universe of Things yeah. uh, with, by Gwyneth Jones. So I just want to mark that um, for both lovers yeah. of science. Well, I mean, I do a lot of work on science fiction, and it only comes a little bit into this book, but it's, I mean, it's, science fiction is a continually important reference point for me. And as I said, in this case, the phrase The Universe of Things comes from a Shelley poem Mont Blanc, which Whitehead actually talks about, but it also is the chat. It also is title of a short story by Gwyneth Jones, which is part of a cycle of stories set in the same future universe, and then it becomes my title as well. So, and so. The, um, in that chapter, also, you mentioned a major concept that we're going to move on to as we move on to the um, kind of second half of the book. But I want to just pause very yeah. briefly because one of the things that you mentioned offhand just a few minutes ago is something that um, I'd love to hear a little bit more of your thoughts about, and that's the blogosphere. Yeah. So you maintain a blog, right? Um, and I think yeah. blogging is becoming, and, and you, you invoked it, I think, um, just a, a little while yes, ago. Yes, sure. That's been kind of formative in, in the direction this is taken. So would you just speak to that a little bit, kind of your take on um, the formative aspects of blogging in the blog, blogosphere and shaping either your, um, the way you're attending to this work or the yeah. field or, yeah, any way you want to approach that? Well, there are a bunch of things. I've been blogging for over a decade, and in recent years, as I've been more busy, I've had less blog entries than I used to have. I used to write a lot about books I read, movies I saw, vague philosophical ideas, things like that. I don't do it as much anymore. I'm just too busy. But um, I don't know. I mean, there, there's several aspects to it. One is both positive and negative in relation to speculative realism. It's, it's both been an area where speculative realism has been developed, which people, you know, and has been criticized for the things we always know happen, which go online. Everything like, um, you know, um, flame wars and quick, thoughtless responses and all kinds of ugly, stupid things which go on. I mean, on, I mean, there's no way to have the bad, the good without the bad. But I prefer to, and again, among the speculative Ray Brassier, one of the four original speculative realists, has basically wrote a, in an interview which appeared online. He said he spoke very scornfully of philosophy being conducted by blogosphere and how this was a really bad thing, leading to kind of superficial, mindless, you know, exaltations and things like that. And he said also misleading, misleading impressionable graduate students. Wow. And I mean, he's right to an extent, but at the same time, I would want to stress the positive. I mean, there are there are people in. in I mean, I follow. I have different areas of intellectual interest, and I follow blogs in as well as conversations with Facebook, etc., and on, in these different areas. And I think, in a certain sense, it allows for a wider dissemination of thought. I'd mentioned two things specifically. One is that in speculative realism in particular, it's allowed a lot of younger people who often don't have academic positions, are graduate students, or in some cases are people who who gotten their PhDs recently but don't have a job, to actually speak to people, to reach out, to say things, and if you read them and you find them intelligent and informative, then and respond to them, and then become part of a conversation. And there are a lot of younger people in, in things related to speculative realism, though some of them don't like the term anymore, who have become, have made a presence and made it for themselves because of blogging, because they write provocative, intelligent things on difficult subjects. And, and so, in a certain sense, I mean, it it, I don't want to be too utopian, but it does, to a certain extent, help or make it possible for voice to be heard without having to go through. I've spent ten years, you know, writing free books and having academic credentials and stuff like that. So I think that's a very positive thing. The second thing, which is positive, is just allowing for greater speed. I mean, academic publishing really seems to me to be broken in many ways. Um, there's so it's some, it, it takes so long to get things in print, and then often they're buried behind paywalls, and if your university doesn't have enough money to subscribe, you can't get a hold of them, and it's, it's you know, so it seems to me that being able to put stuff on, online is one, able, is one way to um, 
get stuff out there quicker. So, I mean, I publish things online partly because I want people to read them, and it'll be three years before they appear in print. And even when they appear in print, they'll be in a journal, which is also people access online, but which they don't have access to because of because of paywalls. So it's allowed, you know, I, I the thing is, our, the means of production of printing and publishing have changed radically in the last 20, 30 years. But if anything, the, the speed at which things get published has gotten slower instead of faster, which doesn't make any sense. And I think it's important. I mean, I, I think being kind of being a public intellectual, you have to have a presence online. And even if you're not considered that category, still getting your ideas out to people who would be interested in them, it's just there's a problem because of people not getting credit for it. I'm a full professor with tenure, so it doesn't worry me as much. But a lot of younger people don't know if they should publish on the, online because then the university might say, oh, that doesn't count as the real publication. It won't help you get tenure. And um, I believe very much in trying to make things more accessible and to make them things you publish academically get out faster, be more accessible to the general public. And therefore, I would want, I favor, though it's a very hard argument to make in administrative terms, that publishing things online should be more considered for junior scholars for things like tenure. But anyway, it seems to me that it's, an, it's, it's a great thing that you yeah, get wider distribution much faster than with more traditional modes of publication. I completely agree with you, and I think um, in some ways those of us who are you know, active in these ways or who feel like we want to be opening up the ground a little bit for those younger scholars who are coming up and who are really active in this really transformative, I think, yeah. field, um, you know, like that one of the things that those of us who are tenured can do is to start to try to agitate, right, to, to start yeah. um, uh, making the case, basically, for the change in the way we administratively weigh. Yes, definitely. Of, yeah. But I think it just allows for more. I mean, there was more discussion because instead of having to wait six months or three years for something to come out, it's there and people can respond to it right away. That's right. And there's a history of ephemera, right, being valued. Yeah. Um, so what's wrong with that? But, yeah, so yeah. I, I, I thank you so much um, for speaking to that because I think it's a really important part of this larger conversation. But also, the book is. So let's get back to the yeah. book a little bit. So okay. at the end of Chapter 3, um, you mention, you talk about three issues, one of which it really follows through as a major thread for the rest of the book. So you talk about issues of anthropomorphism, of vitalism, in this reading of Harmon and Whitehead um, in terms of the, the universe of things, but you also talk about panpsychism. And since this is a theme that comes up throughout the book, um, I just want to mention this because it takes us forward. Yeah. Now, in the next few chapters, we see the concept, the development of this idea of panpsychism, um, arguments for panpsychism, and the consequences of this for the larger arguments. Yeah. So let's kind of get into it. Chapter four argues that if you reject correlationism, and so for listeners, this is this idea that we started the conversation with when we talked about speculative realism and the assume uh, correlationism. So this chapter is arguing if you reject correlationism, there's a stark choice that emerges. And this is a choice between two kinds of things. On the yeah. one hand, eliminativism, so eliminate with an ism in there. So for listeners, yeah. eliminativism, and on the other hand, panpsychism. So to take us into this part of the book, can you talk a little bit about what is eliminativism? How does this maybe open up a way of understanding who Miyasu is and what he has to do with what's going on? And then how? Um, then what's happening with panpsychism here? And, and how is that important to what's going on? Okay, well, again, my suggestion is that these are two extreme points which may be totally opposed to each other, but... They both are sort of ways you might be drawn to one or the other if you try to get away from correlationalism. So if you're trying to get away from the world always exists in relation to us, you have a certain kind of paradox. What it means, how do we talk about the world insofar as it is not related to us, given that by talking about that we're giving bearing its relation with us? That's why this realism has to be speculative. But there are two ways of going about that. One way would be to sort of say that, well, we had, we're thinking in certain ways. We project all these things on, on the world. And to think, to get at the world without our projections means basically to strip away, let's say, all the mental accretions which we are supposedly adding to things. And this can, this can lead to eliminativism, say, I mean, what is sort of like um, saying that, well, 
if we get rid of our own human-centered terms, what we're left is the hard facts of physical science. We have matter, which is not vital, which is not alive, which doesn't sit, which doesn't think, which is just sort of there, which uh, operates according to physical laws. And what we're left with, once we get rid of anthropocentrism, is any sense of liveliness in the world. That's just our projection. So in Ray Brassier, this comes down to basically trusting physical science whose discoveries are more and more overturned. I mean, this whole history that, you know, starting with Galileo, with Copernicus, then Galileo, then Darwin, then in the 20th century, that scientific discoveries have disqualified our sense that we're the crown of creation, that the world is centered about us or around, or around a benevolent God, and more understanding, here's this mathematizable physical reality which just is and which doesn't really care about us one way or another. So somebody like Brassier will push this this very far. Brassier thinks about scientific rationality as radically different from all the other ways we have of understanding the world. It's the one way that we can think about the world, subtracting ourselves from it. And a lot of his investigations are centered that way. Mayasu is a little different. He claims that aspects of the world which can be mathematized or digitized. These mathematical structures exist objectively. They aren't our projection. But then Mayasu sort of flips it around because Mayasu ultimately has this very strong metaphysical theory that everything is contingent, that one thing you know is necessarily true is that nothing is necessary. Nothing happens for any reason at all. When, I mean, that, that's a kind of extreme position, but provocative because it's extreme. But anyway... Um, so one response to getting rid of correlationism is to sort of just get rid of anything which seems anthropomorphic, anything which seems attributing human qualities to the rest of the cosmos, and, and therefore what terms that we have left for the rest of the cosmos, and basically are these scientific mathematical ones. So of course, this is something which science studies and philosophy science is very in dispute over. So it's a certain reading of science also. The other extreme is to say, if we're not going to be anthropos... Well, there's a difference in anthropocentrism, anthropomorphism. Anthropocentrism says we're the center of everything, and anthropomorphism makes comparisons or analogies between us and other things. Now, against the eliminativists are against both. Um, I think the other extreme, the other way you could go with correlationism is to... And this is something that Jane Bennett who's an important new materialist thinker, says. She says that maybe, of course, there's a risk of anthropomorphism. We'll just find ourselves everywhere all over again. But maybe there's, if it's done carefully, maybe there might be some value in it to, to precisely to avoid being so human-centered. I mean, it's sort of like, um, if I look at my dog, my dog is alive. My dog clearly has ideas and desires and wishes and all that kind of stuff and, and emotional moods. Um, is it anthropomorphic to say that my dog feels certain things and feels in certain ways. Um, I think it would be anthropomorphic to say that my dog has the same emotions and the same perception of the world that I do. I know that the dog's emotions and views of the world are very different, but he still does have emotions and feelings. Now, it gets as you go down the ladder of life, it gets dodgier, but, you know, recent scientific studies have sort of suggested that um, even if they're not conscious, that plants and microorganisms have certain impulses, they have certain what we might call desires or, in, or, or certainly interests that they are sentient and in the, in the degree that they're sensible, that they respond to the world and in, they respond to the world in flexible ways rather than just by a kind of automatic reflex. So the other alternative is to not say that, well, when we get rid of human-centered stuff, or we're left is this scientific physical universe. The other thing is to say, well, maybe things like sentience, things we feel and think, are present elsewhere in the world. Now, they're present at least in living things, but then you get the next level of the question is, where do these things come from? Panpsychism is sort of the thesis that everything in a certain sense has a certain degree of sentience to it, has a certain degree of mentality. Now, it seems pretty hard to argue that a rock is intelligent or that it is sentient, though, as I said, I think it makes a lot of sense to argue that, say, bacteria, in fact, are intelligent in certain ways, but a rock doesn't seem to be. But you get a kind of philosophical argument of where does sentience come from? It has to, in a certain sense, exist implicitly at every level of the physical universe, 
if you don't want to say that it's something magical, something comes from God, or something that has a totally supernatural origin, or is something just essentially human. So the alternative to seeing the world without human beings as being this entirely dead mechanical world is to see everything that exists to a certain extent having at least incipient possibilities for sentience or experientiality, whatever you want to say. And so in order to, um, so if we're going to really take seriously, and the book really does take this seriously, seriously and playfully in the best possible uses of those concepts, right? Um, yeah. so the book is going to take seriously this idea of panpsychism, this idea that, um, as you put it, I think at one point, the idea of the imminence of thought everywhere. If thought is everywhere, this involves a very particular way of conceiving what thought means, like sure. what it looks like. And this is something that's elaborated um, in the last uh, couple of chapters of the book. So um, can you take us into that one? What kind? What notion of thought needs to do we need to accept, or what notion of thought do you explore here? Um, rather, maybe is a better way of putting. It. Yeah. Well. Yeah. No. Sure. Well, I mean, I should say that this is an active subject of discussion. I mean, in among philosophers, at least among some philosophers, um, there. So I have a different. I have a okay. One thing is that. There's a guy, David Skirbino, who wrote a book, Panpsychism in the West, and he basically just shows that this, these kinds of doctrines, that thought is imminent everywhere, they kind of have a hidden presence in Western thought, going back to the pre-Socratics and up through the 20th century into the 21st. There's not, it's never been a majority opinion, but um, it's there in people like Spinoza and Leibniz, it's there in somebody like... Whitehead, and even to a certain extent in Burton Russell, um, there's always been a kind of subterranean interest in panpsychism as opposed to the kind of hyper-rationalism which says only human beings can think and everything else is dead and inert. Okay. So, so that's one. Re- more recently, with both philosophers of mind and neurobiologists have been interested in in cognition as a function of complexity and a lot of several of the research nobody really knows I mean this is a wide open field but a number of researchers have suggested that in a certain sense anytime information is being processed you have to think there's some kind of mentality there um, and I mean Galen Strawson is a British analytic philosopher who's very strongly argue for this. Others, David Chalmers, major figure in philosophy of mind, sort of argues that, well, you know, a thermostat in a very primitive way is processing information. It turns on and off depending on the the temperature. So in a certain sense, you have an entity which senses something in the external world and responds to it. Now, it does it in a very mechanical, uninteresting way. But he says that's kind of information processing on a very basic level, so maybe we should think of it as consciousness or sentience on a very basic basic level. Now, I'm not sure I'm saying the same thing as those people, but I'm pointing out that it's become a... I mean, some people have theorized Giulio Tonini, who said, who works with a neurobiologist, has hypothesized that intelligence or sentience arises anytime you have a certain amount of density of information processing going on. So, there's actually a lot of interest now in sort of in sort of seeing thinking as more widely spread than human beings. So, that's partly because Again, we have a less grandiose idea of what thinking is. So thinking is not just, you know, Plato or Kant devising concepts for understanding the world of ideas or understanding the concepts of the understanding, but it's sort of like a form of way things interact with other things. So, I mean, and again, there's something which seems evident of living things, and increasingly so even in non-animal or non-brain living things. But it's but it's it may be a more basic principle of how entities interact. So that's part of what I'm drawing on. I'm giving it a different inflection, which comes from Whitehead, which is to suggest that Whitehead always talks about what he calls feeling, and he says this is a mere technical term. It doesn't mean like he's he, he not literally saying that an electron or a rock feels sad or happy in the way that living things might. But he's nonetheless saying that in a certain sense. Things respond to other things and are either drawn towards or drawn away from those other things. I mean, in a rock responds to gravity. It's drawn towards, it's, it's drawn by gravitational attraction. Now, again, that doesn't seem to be very mental in itself, but um, one way to think about thought is to think that maybe we've been too grandiose in thinking rationality, thought, this thing, which marvelous thing which we have, and more think about how 
it's it's a sort of exacerbated version of a much wider process which exists in reality in general. So this actually, I think, really nicely brings us to the last chapter of the book in a way and sort of toward the, um, maybe unfortunately, the conclusion of our conversation, although I yeah. feel like this is going to be a beginning, right, not an end of anything. So you mentioned, you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that at least part of the inspiration of the book was very much an engagement with the work of Stangers on Whitehead. Yes. And you do mention also somewhere in the book um, that one of the really interesting things about Stangers' approach to Whitehead is that she kind of positions philosophy not as a kind of overarching system of truths about things, but as a, yeah. a you know, set of responses to particular kinds of problems. Yes. Right? It's interactive. It's about dialogue. So if yeah. you think about um, the, the book um, that we're talking about right now as a, you know, a contribution in that light, and we think about these ideas of panpsychism, um, we talk about causality here, problems yeah. of universality, in light of and as a kind of response to and dialogue with the sorts of problems that come up when we're taking seriously um, the work of Carmen and Mia Sue and Whitehead, one of the things that then emerges from that, I think, really productive kind of attitude toward and, and kind of um, treatment of philosophy as activity and as conversation is yeah. an idea um, that you propose at the very end of the book. And this is an idea that, that um, you call alternately a speculative realism that focuses on aesthetics or, at the end, a speculative aesthetics as an alternative to the kinds of things that Harmon and Miyasu are suggesting. Yeah. So to kind of bring us um, home here, can you talk about that notion? For you, um, what's important for us to understand about this notion of speculative aesthetics um, insofar as you're proposing it and suggesting it um, as a possible way forward? Okay. Well, there... I guess there are two things. One is, obviously, it seems bizarre to people because aesthetics is something that human beings have, and, it's, and therefore we have to be anthropocentric to propose aesthetics. But I kind of don't think that's true. I mean, for one thing, Darwin shows how other living organisms have kind of aesthetic sense about things in, in, in general. And again, Harmon then extends this very further, and he says when... When, when a rock hits the ground, that's, there's an aesthetic interchange going on. And I'm interested in, that's an aspect of harmony that resonates with me. But there's a second thing. Um, what it has to do is with the difference between cognition and other, for, or other forms of interaction or of relation or of things affecting other things. So most science and philosophy right now is largely cognitively based. So cognition, I mean, is a way of understanding things. And again, you might say that even inanimate things engage in certain cognitive activities. Anytime you're, any information is being processed, something like cognition is going on, even though many times when we talk about that, it's not information for the thing itself. It's only for us that it is information. But, um, the, but most philosophy... And science today, we deal with these issues at all, seem to think cognition is central to, to these processes. And I think that's led to certain misleading reductions, also, or it's left too much out of the picture. And the reason for that is because, again, I don't think that interactions among living things, let alone in extending it down the scale to non alive entities is necessarily cognitive. I think things interact and react prior to their existence. I mean, there are a lot of philosophical confusions about, well, do dogs really think? Do, you know, if, do they have concepts? They don't have language. They can't have the kind of concepts that we have. Are they really thinking? It seems to me obvious that they are really thinking, but concepts and cognitions might be too difficult, too restrictive a way to talk about it. I mean, that's also true um, for human beings. A lot of cognitive science and psychology and neuroscience has shown us that a lot of ways our minds work are not accessible to us consciously. And they, and yet they are seen as being cognitive for cognitive processing. In effect, the arguments we're making hypotheses about the world, we're testing them, we're putting things in categories, even if we're not conscious of doing so. So some Scientists and philosophers would separate that from language and therefore grant it to more entities than just human beings. But I, I still think it's an overestimation of the way in which 
categories or concepts play a role. A lot of this is really vague and unformed, and you respond to things without knowing why you respond to them. And a lot of this, I mean, in a lot of, there's a whole thing in, in computer modeling of brains or in neurophilosophy and neuroscience where they think about connectionism. You just sort of connect up these things in random ways, and eventually by selection, you know, you perpetuate the one right connections and, the, and get rid of the wrong ones, and eventually a machine is able to recognize faces or discriminate colors or something like that. Um, and they don't, nobody really knows, understands how it works. It's just sort of they have stuff going in, stuff going out. I want to suggest that processes like that are, well, one way is to say, when you, why did would say they have feelings of aversion and adversion. Another way is to use the language of affect theory and talk a lot of, a lot of recent theories of humanities. I'm thinking of Brian Masumi, especially, but there are many others as well, who are thinking about affect as a more primordial mode of relation which precedes cognitive categories. Now, for me, this actually relates to aesthetics in a surprising way. Kant, basically, is the sort of foundation of modern aesthetic thought, says that aesthetic Judgments that are kind of a judgment don't can't be described in terms of categories. There's singular instances. I say this thing is beautiful. It's you cannot ground beauty for Kant either on a moral command or on a factual empirical observation. In a certain sense, neither of those two types of categories fit. It doesn't have a category. It doesn't have a concept. So. Kant, in talking about aesthetic judgment, is actually, in his own language, and obviously we'd have to change a lot, but it's starting to think about how what he's calling judgments, which you might prefer to call attitudes towards the world or stances or approaches or interactions, in a way that is not necessarily grounded in cognition, firmly in the same way that, that, that too much philosophy and science still assumes. So that's a wedge by which aesthetic seems to me to relate to some of the deepest issues which philosophers and scientists are dealing with about that mentality right now. Well, thank you so much. Um, so, Steve, there's a million things yeah. that we didn't have a chance to talk sure. about. There's a whole, um, even just in the last chapter, there's a very, yeah. um, very helpful and very interesting discussion of um, Kantian aesthetics, you know, looking at the idea of interest yeah. and disinterestedness. Um, there's a, a causality comes up here. There's a really interesting yeah. discussion. And this is just one of seven chap- body chapters. I yes, think. sure. Um, so, the, you know, I, I hope listeners will go in and find a copy of the book and read the book so that they can experience this richness and this series of arguments for themselves. But in the meantime, yeah. is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about but that you'd like to mention for listeners and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't had a chance to read the book yet? It's hard to say. I mean, I don't have anything in particular to say about this book, though. I mean, there are a lot of things if you ask me about it, I could go on and on. But no, I don't feel this thing missing from our conversation, which I have to assert right now. Okay, great. So, okay. So now that the book is out, and congratulations on what I hope is obvious to listeners, is a book I really loved um, and I think is really important and also Thanks um, again. helpful for its clarity. What's next for you? What are you working on right now that you're feeling particularly inspired by? Well, um, this is something I already finished, but I have another shorter book coming out in the next month or two about another subject which has been very agitated in the blogosphere, which is accelerationism. So accelerationism is a kind of doctrine which, put as crudely as possible, says the only way out of capitalism is to push its tendencies to the utmost point, point where they explode. And this has taken a number of, it's, been, it's become a big subject of discussion again in the philosophy blogosphere I pay attention to. It sort of combines ideas from Marxism with ideas from people like Deleuze and Guattari at the Atard, French philosophers writing in the 1970s, and relates to questions of, you know, sort of what, where, what can the left do today, which, you know, obviously we're not doing very well. Um, so I give my own kind of summary of and response to this argument, and that book will be out. It's called No Speed Limit, Three Essays on Accelerationism. It's going to be part of a new book series from the University of Minnesota Press called Forerunners, which publishes electronically, publishes shorter texts, like this is 
if a full academic book is fifty to hundred thousand words, this is like eighteen thousand words. Oh, and that's, that's a typical way for books in that series. So that, that's all already done. Congratulations. Um, thank that's you. Wonderful. Beyond that, I mean, I really work on several different areas, and though they intersect sometimes, it's hard to say how they all fit together. So my work on Alfred North Whitehead and then looking speculative realism through Whitehead is one kind of strand. But there are two other kind of areas or strands which are very different. One is I'm doing a lot of work on science fiction. I think science fiction, much more literal, written science fiction, science fiction films, is a kind of way of exploring new ideas, new possibilities, both in terms of the kinds of ideas we've been talking about in the universe of things, which is why I, the science fiction text makes a very big in, you know, intervention, if that's the word, in, in the book. But, but there are many other ways in which science fiction, by speculating, by extrapolating from present technologies and present states of knowledge to the unknown, helps us think about both kind of ontological issues and social and economic issues. So I'm working on a book now about how science fiction helps deal with issues of cognition and sentience and the kinds of things I was talking about, and how it maybe gives a different slant on these same issues than more formal philosophy does. So that's one thing. But I'm also, I, I'm actually a professor of film studies, and that's what I actually teach. And in, in film, what I'm working on now is, I guess, basically ways in which new digital technologies together with changed social circumstances are leading to new sorts of audiovisual structures which sort of have different perspectives on things like relations of time and space, relations of sound and image, um, and things like that. So I'm really dealing with how some recent films and even more recent music videos through using all kinds of digital effects are in fact constructing scenarios which have very different sort of ways of inhabiting the world to them than what we've been accustomed to in audiovisual narratives in the 20th century. So that's awesome also. So as soon as you finish that book, that video, yeah. we'll talk about that as well. Um, but, um, congratulations. Well, but yeah. This has really been such a pleasure to talk with you. Um, best of luck on all of your thank you. really exciting projects, and thanks for making the time. Well, thank you very much for thinking of this interview and for asking me to participate. You've been listening to the New Books Network Seminar. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.